I'm Charlotte Leslie, director of CMEC, and I'm joined by author and journalist Con Coughlin to talk about Con's new book on the tragedy of Syria, The Triumph of Tyranny. The Triumph of Tyranny pretty much sums up the tragedy of Syria, where Bashar al-Assad and his family appear to be emerging victorious after 12 years of bloody civil war. So it is a fitting title of the new book on Syria, by the Telegraph's defence editor and author, Con Coughlin, who I'm delighted to say is my guest on the CMEC podcast today. Con's book is a brilliant but a hard read. It details the rise of the Assad family, originally a poor Shia family from the Alawite Mountains in northwestern Syria. Assad's ruthless father, Hafez al-Assad, rises through an endless cycle of coups and intrigues of the Ba'ath Party to become president of Syria in 1970. The heir apparent is the oldest son, Basil. But in 1994, Basil dies in a car crash, leaving Hafez's younger son, Bashar al-Assad, a trainee eye surgeon, to inherit the presidency. And Bashar does so on the death of his father in the year 2000. For 53 years, the Assads have remained in power through bloody repression and now a terrible 12-year civil conflict that has devastated Syria and claimed at least 500,000 lives. Con, welcome. You call your book The Triumph of Tyranny, so you clearly believe Assad has won. Well, thank you very much for that introduction, Charlotte. It's great to be with you. I think the, the, there's an irony to the title, because the, the book is about what happens when tyrants like Bashar al-Assad are left to their own devices, and the rest of the world does not get involved, take an interest, and try and pr protect people who are being oppressed by a tyrannical regime. So, so that, that's where I'm coming from. And I think that the fact that Assad has survived, I say in the book he survived, I didn't say that he won the war, but he has survived, he is still in power. And probably more, more alarming is that he and his regime are now being rehabilitated for all kinds of complex geopolitical reasons. And one of the reasons I wrote this book was to highlight his personal involvement in the brutalization of the Syrian people that took place, that has taken place during the Syrian conflict, for which I believe he should stand trial for war crimes, just as Vladimir Putin in Russia has been charged with war crimes for his conduct in Ukraine. And at the moment, as we talk today, there is very little prospect of this because, as I say, there's a process of rehabilitation going on between certainly the Arab world and Syria, where nobody is talking about Bashar al-Assad and his key commanders being held accountable for their appalling conduct during the civil war. As many people would say, that's just one of the incongruities and the inconsistencies of treatment of the international community to war crimes, as we see Putin in Ukraine, and we see, in, indeed, we see illegal occupation in Israel. Your book is fascinating because it takes us all the way back through the beginning of the Assad regime, through Bashar's history. Before we come to where we are today, can we talk a little bit about the origin of the regime? How this family, who isn't a monarchy, but often behaves as if they were, how they came to power? Do you think that some of Hafez's brutality, well, obviously the brutality of, of Hafez, did that ever go away? Bashar al-Assad had a, a period during which there was great optimism for democracy. 
what happened? How does the background of the family lead us to where we are today? Well, first of all, what, what's really important, Charlotte, is the ethnicity of the Assad clan, because they come from the Alawite community. The Alawites constitute about 10% of the Syrian population. And the Alawites historically inhabited this sort of barren mountain area of Western Syria by the shores of the Mediterranean. And for centuries, you know, during the Ottoman Empire, etc., they were the poor relations of Syria. And the wealthy Sunni families patronized them, hired them as cleaners and menial workers. And one of the big changes that benefited the Alawites was the French colonial period, where the French brought education and educational opportunities to the Alawites. And Hafez al-Assad, who was born in 1930, was one of the first beneficiaries. He came from a very, a very primitive family, and his father was a sort of local tough guy. And they changed their name to Assad, which means lion, to sort of reflect that they were the, sort of the top family in the tribe in that, in that particular village in Kurdahar. And it was through the education system that, that first of all, Hafez got an education and then was able to join the Syrian military, which was another avenue for social mobility. And rising through the ranks of the Syrian military at a time when the Arab world was almost in constant conflict with Israel and became a very political entity as much as a military entity. So the young Hafez is exposed to Nasserism, spends some time in Cairo, does some training in Moscow, which he hated, by the way, and gradually finds his way into the Ba'ath Party, which was one of the new revolutionary stroke socialist movements that was sweeping through the Middle East at a time when students in Paris were on the streets and, and people were protesting against Vietnam. It was, it was a very heady time, and the Ba'ath Party was seen as the great future for the Arab world. But of course, once the Ba'athists established power, they became as dictatorial as everybody else. And as you said in, in your introduction, eventually Hafez made his way to the top of the party in the presidency of Syria. And he established a very brutal and ruthless regime. And I first came across it in the early 1980s when I was covering the Lebanese civil war and based in Beirut. And you know, you felt the, the very heavy presence of the Syrian military and the Mahabharat the whole time. And they were on your case if you wrote something disobliging about Assad. Just to come on to Bashar al-Assad, so when he came to power in 2000 and he started talking about reform, and a more liberal kind of government. There was a lot of interest. I wouldn't put it any more strongly than that. I mean, Hafez was utterly brutal, wasn't he? In Hama in 1982, 20,000 people die when he crushes a Muslim Brotherhood uprising. And that goes yeah. down in, in kind of world consciousness as, as that of a very brutal regime. And actually, looking back, what happened in Hama has implications for the Syrian civil war. Because from the moment the Ba'athists came into power, as I said, a sort of secularist, socialist, Western-looking kind of organisation, or, or some would say it's a Soviet-looking organisation, depends on who you talk to in the Ba'ath movement. But their big enemy were the Islamist supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood, these are Sunnis? And they are Sunnis, predominantly Sunnis, yes. And they are very against the sort of secular 
democratic structures that the Ba'athists want to establish. And from a very early stage on, the Muslim Brotherhood is challenging the Ba'athists and Assad directly. At one point, he narrowly escapes an assassination attempt when a Muslim Brotherhood assassination squad throw a grenade at him and he just kicks it away and, and it saves his life. So there was no love lost between them. And so when they staged a revolt in Hammer in 82, Hafez got his forces to brutally crush it. So basically to shut up the Muslim Brotherhood for the rest of his presidency. And of course, when Basha comes to power, the first people to start putting their heads above the parapet when there's talk of reform and liberalization is the Muslim Brotherhood. And many of these Muslim Brotherhood characters then end up forming you know, the Islamist opposition in the civil war that came to pose the greatest threat to Basha's survival in power. So, you know, there is a direct thread between what happened in Hama in 1982 and what groups like the Nusra Front, etc., and even Islamic State were up to in Syria during the civil war. So all these phenomena that we see today have their roots at least decades ago. I'm Charlotte Leslie, director of CMEC, and I'm joined by author and journalist Con Coughlin to talk about Con's new book on the tragedy of Syria, The Triumph of Tyranny. Now, one of the things I found so fascinating about your account of this period of time is that Hafez and his brother Rifat very brutally put down this Muslim Brotherhood uprising, very decisively, very brutally. But then just a, a year later, they fall out, his brother attempts a coup, and civil wars averted not by any sort of mass military, but by his mother and the matriarch, Naisa. Then we come to the, the fact that actually, perhaps you know, the cleverest of the Assads was Hafez's beloved daughter, Bushra, and yeah. you tend to get the impression from your book that you have these, these slightly out of control blokes who resort to force because they all feel a bit inadequate and scared about everything, but some really quite impressive women. Is that a fair reading of it? Yeah, I think I think you could say that the matriarchal tendencies in the Assad family were something that held it together in times of trouble. I mean, with Hafez al-Assad was, was quite capable of looking after himself. And as you say... The, the ruthlessness of the regime on, during his presidency is well documented. Apart from the massacre at Hama, the treatment of political opponents who were regularly just murdered in quite brutal ways. You, you know, journalists I knew in Beirut were murdered for writing disobliging things about Assad. But as you rightly say, Naisa ended the power struggle between Hafez and Rifat. And I was in Beirut when this all happened. And Hafez had a bad heart suffered from heart problems and was incapacitated. And Rifat thought that this was an opportunity for him to take the presidency. And he actually mobilised his forces. And Hafez left his hospital bed and, and got his own forces out. And it came very close to civil war. But Naisa basically banged their heads together. And that ended with Rifat going back into exile. And when Hafez realised he was dying, Bushra, his only daughter, who was a very headstrong woman, was seen by Hafez after Basil had died as somebody who could actually run the presidency. But unfortunately, because it, Syria remains a very conservative, patriarchal society, that was never seriously an issue. And so that is why Basha was groomed for the presidency and eventually got it. But for the early years of the presidency, Bushra 
had an office in the presidential palace and certainly took a very dim view of Basha's wife, Asma, the British-born banker, who started to uh, behave like the first lady of Syria, which Naisa had never done. And so there was a lot of family resentment. And, and, the, and the, the women in, in, in the clan were, were at each other's uh, throats for a time. So Basil's dead, Bushra can't become president, and it falls to slightly counterintuitive Bashar. How does he take to the role? Well, what was interesting research in the book was talking to people who knew Bashar al-Assad when he was studying in London to be an ophthalmologist surgeon. And, you know, he's a very shy, diffident guy who kept himself to himself. He, he was a fairly ordinary student. You know, I've spoken to some of the ophthalmologists in London who were training him and you know, he wasn't any great shake, but he worked hard and kept himself to himself. And when he's called back to Damascus after Basil's death, again, you get this rather faltering, shy, diffident character who's given a crash course in being a dictator. He's sent off to the military academy at Homs to, you know, to, to learn how the military operates. He gets tutorage from senior Arab diplomats in the way the world works, and he's taken around the world. And... People like Jacques Chirac, the then French president, try and take him under their wing. And so you do get this sense that you know, perhaps when Hafez is gone and Basha comes to the presidency, because there, there was never really any serious challenge to him when Hafez died, that Syria might take another course. And that was because Basha gave the opinion to everybody that he'd taken a lot of his education on board and did want to have a more modern Syria, where the government was more representative. What went wrong? I think what went wrong, first of all, before the Arab Spring, we had the Damascus Spring in 2000 to 2001. So when Bashar came to power, he gave a big speech at his inauguration in which he talked about reform. And everybody thought this meant political reform as well as economic reform. He was really talking about economic reform to try and revive the Syrian economy. But as a consequence of that, all these political groups that have been suppressed by Hafez started to bubble to the surface and to write declarations in favour of, you know, more democratic, a more democratic constitution. And frankly, the Ba'athist old guard were alarmed by this and pressured Basha to put the lid on this before it got out of control. And very soon, a lot of these people, some of whom have been jailed by Hafez al-Assad, found themselves in jail again under Bashar al-Assad because reform only went so far, as far as the Ba'athists were concerned. Was there any economic reform? And, and if there had been economic reform and the country had been lifted faster and more efficiently, do you think there would still have been those political, long-standing political problems because of the, the nature of Syria being, as, as you call it, very fractious, um, full of different ethnicities and, and conflicting groups? I don't think there was any serious economic reform. There was a degree of economic prosperity, but that prosperity was very quickly channeled into the hands of either the Assad clan, relatives of Bashar al-Assad himself, or the wider sort of Al Alawite community. But the majority Sunnis and those that weren't senior figures in the Ba'ath Party were left out. And when the Arab Spring started rumbling in early 2011, as in a lot of the Arab world, most of the complaints against the Assad regime were about the economic mismanagement and the corruption in the system, more than you know, the demands of political reform. You saw this in Egypt 
and you saw this in Syria, and that was the driving motivation, was the endemic corruption and lack of opportunity for ordinary Syrians to make a better life for themselves. And while we're on corruption, and before we, we really talk about the Arab Spring and what happens from there, the other thing that the Assads have become synonymous with is, is corruption, but drugs, criminality, a whole network of drug smuggling and criminality. Was that present then? How did that grow up? And how does that relate to, we can talk a bit about Iran and Hezbollah. How, how does that connect? And was that in play before the Arab Spring? There were elements of it in play before the Arab Spring. Hezbollah, for example, a bit like the Taliban in Afghanistan, a lot, a lot of these extremist groups fund their activities by polluting the rest of the world with narcotics. So Hezbollah has been controlling the Lebanese drugs trade for decades. And the Syrian Mahabharat and the Assad regime would have had a stake in that. I don't think they controlled it in the same way that they do now with the Captagon industry. But it was there. And of course, criminality was at the heart of the Ba'athist regime because to get a lot of the things done that they wanted done, sponsoring terrorist groups, etc., you need to have criminal communication structures. You know, if you're going to assassinate the Lebanese prime ministers, as Bashar did with Hariri in 2005, you've got to have a very sophisticated criminal network to achieve your goals. So the networks that were in place and and once the network's established, you can use it for different outcomes, whether it's terrorism, which they did a lot during the Iraq conflict, or more latterly, running a global drugs trade. And as you say, often too, the drugs trade symbiotic, the drugs trade then funds the terrorism and those activities. Correct, correct. So we're approaching 2011. Some boys have written some graffiti on a wall. And the Arab Spring is bubbling away. Take us through briefly what happens during that period. Well, what was interesting was that when the uh, the Arab Spring, I mean, personally, I've never liked the phrase the Arab Spring because the, the protests in Tunisia were very different to the protests in eastern Saudi Arabia, etc. But you know, there was a, a protest movement that swept the Arab world in different guises. What's interesting is the, the protests in Syria came well after what had happened in Tahrir Square in Cairo and Tunisia and even Libya. Syria was slow to the party and the initial protests were very modest in the border town of Dera. There's basically some schoolboys daubed some graffiti on, on a wall saying your next doctor, a reference to um, their president. And as was the Ba'athist way, there was this complete overreaction. The, the schoolboys were arrested and tortured, and that prompted more demonstrations, and the Ba'athists re responded militarily, and people got killed. And in this modern day and age, a lot of this is recorded on mobile phones and internet footage, which circulated throughout the country. And within the space of a few weeks, the whole country was ablaze, but mainly because of the heavy-handed response of the Assad regime to a rather trifling protest in a remote corner of Syria. I'm Charlotte Leslie, director of CMEC, and I'm joined by author and journalist Con Coughlin to talk about Con's new book on the tragedy of Syria, The Triumph of Tyranny. It's interesting. I was in Damascus in February 2011, um, and that was after things had begun to, to kick off. And as you say, we should call it the so-called Arab Spring. 
And I remember whilst there was nothing going on, there was enormous tension amongst people. You could feel the storm thickening and people realising that something was coming that way. And there seemed to be tremendous hatred of the government that was already beginning to seep through the cracks. One important feature of that protest movement in 2011 was that it was the secular dictatorships that felt the heat in, in Libya with Gaddafi, with Mubarak in, in Cairo and Ben Ali in Tunisia. And the monarchists actually rode out the storm pretty well because they had, had a far better understanding of their people and better contacts. But in Syria, as I said, the reason people despised the Assad clan was their arrogance and their corruption. So Assad, Bashar al-Assad and Asma preening themselves opening a new opera house when half the population is starving. That's what feeds into the, the resentment that you're talking about. It's similar to what we're seeing in Lebanon at the moment, in no way suggesting that Lebanon would go the same way, but that, that disconnect between a, a very wealthy elite enjoying themselves and a country that is that is very, very far behind and not functioning. I'd agree with that, although um, you wonder whether Lebanon's a country these days because you've got, you know, I cover the civil war and Hezbollah's got its own little mini-state in the south and the Christians got their mini-state in the north and the Druze have got the mountains, and yet yeah, is Lebanon still a functioning country? Discuss. And of course, Syria has always had an extremely heavy hand and great influence in Lebanon. Well, as I said, and their heavy hand was so heavy that they they murdered Rafi Hariri. And there's a whole chapter in the book on the assassination of Hariri. And you know, I've spoken to a lot of people who are deeply involved in this, and I make the unequivocal conclusion in the book that Bashar al-Assad and his brother Maha were directly responsible for authorising the assassination of Hariri and then spent the next decade covering their tracks. A lot of this brutality comes out very quickly. Civil conflict and the war escalates to something really almost uniquely horrendous, um, barrel bombs, cluster bombs. And then we, we come to the chemical weapons. Why do you think it escalated to be so horrific so quickly? Well, first of all, the, the Ba'athist way going back to what we said about Hammer, is to brutally crush any sign of opposition to the regime. So that, as someone once said, you know, that what happened in Syria after the civil war started was a replay of the Hammer playbook. You just don't take any prisoners. And very early on in the conflict, I think probably a week after the first protests in Dara, we find Bashar al-Assad setting up a crisis management cell that reports directly to him at the presidential palace, which monitors the areas of the country where the rebels are strong and persistent. And he personally authorises the measures to destroy them, to kill them, to torture them, which took place on an industrial level from a very early stage of the war. The problem for Basha was that no matter how brutal his response, the revolt and also the involvement of outside players meant that very quickly his regime was under enormous pressure. Also, a lot of the people in the, in the Syrian military simply deserted. They wouldn't put up with this. A lot of them were Sunnis. And as we discussed, the Sunnis were, were no friends of the Alawites. And so a lot of the opposition forces that were formed from the summer of 2011 onwards are made up primarily of defected Syrian army officers and, and are very effective. And that is why you see towards the end of the year, 
and certainly into 2012, the regime resorting to chemical weapons. What I would say about the use of chemical weapons is that their initial use, I think, when you look at it, the regime was really testing the response of the West because after Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya, the political will among Western leaders, particularly Barack Obama in the White House, to get involved in any more military interventions in the Middle East was pretty limited. And the Assad crowd and their Russian backers and their Iranian backers knew this. And so the initial chemical weapons attacks, which took place up in Aleppo, were really a test. What are they going to do? And of course, nobody wants to do anything. So investigations are set up and committees established, and the whole issue is knocked into the bureaucratic long grass because nobody really wants to confront Assad. And he knew that. I'm Charlotte Leslie, director of CMEC, and I'm joined by author and journalist Con Coughlin to talk about Con's new book on the tragedy of Syria, The Triumph of Tyranny. Con, in 2013, there was quite a pivotal moment. Obama drew a red line and then didn't honour it. What went on there and what was the consequence for Syria, but also for the West and the West standing in the world? Well, this has been a pivotal moment for the West and and one from which we are still recovering in many, many senses and and certainly has implications for the modern day conflict in Ukraine. But as I said, the Obama administration did not really want to engage with Syria unless it really had to. And when I was researching the book, Obama's red line about the use of chemical weapons in Syria was almost a throwaway remark at a press conference in August of 2012, where he's talking about other things. And somebody asked him about Syria. And it's almost, you know, well, if they do this, that would be a red line for us. But it's almost a hypothetical. But then we look forward a year, and there's little doubt that the Assad regime is using chemical weapons against its own people. And Obama finds himself in a bind. And the way he gets out of it is because Cameron, who is equally equivocal about the whole thing. He was responsible for the intervention in Libya, which by 2013 is going pretty badly wrong with the the country descending into civil war. So Cameron feels that he should take some kind of action, but is conflicted about what kind of action it should be. And the fact that Cameron and the Cameron government is in two minds about what course of action they should take, and also because of their mishandling of Libya, means they can't get a majority in the Commons. So the Commons vetoes military action against Syria. In Parliament, there was a bit of shenanigans there, wasn't there? Of course, people won't forget the role of Ed Miliband, the Labour leader at the time, who'd initially suggested that he would support the the Cameron government in taking limited military action against Assad, and then at the last minute changed his mind which meant that together with you know, some misgivings on the Tory backbenches over action aligned with the, the Labour meant that the motion was defeated. And that, that sets a very bad precedent. And it let Obama off the hook. And Obama then said, well, it was really not my decision. I'm referring it to Congress. And the whole thing just disappeared. And the consequence of this, to answer your question, is it opened the way for Russia to come in, for Iran to deepen its involvement, And for the Assad regime, which at that point could have been overthrown quite easily, to be saved. And it's it's had enormous implications for 
Western policymakers ever since. Looking at Russia and Ukraine today, do you see a link between our indecision or perceived indecision over the red line and action in Syria and what we're seeing in Ukraine? Well, I think what happened in Syria after the 2013 votes and Obama failing to enforce his red line is that we've seen a lot of bad people encouraged to expand their their activities, whether it's Iran in the Middle East, uh, Russia in Europe. And it's been a wake-up call to the West that you might not want to get involved, but you have to. And it's, you know, the old saying is, you know, you don't choose war, war chooses you. And I think having realised we made a big mistake on Syria, I mean, I think one of the reasons nobody wants to prosecute Assad for war crimes is nobody wants to be reminded of the failure of Western policy in Syria and you know, the terrible consequences the Syrian people paid for Western inaction. Nobody wants to talk about it now, which is one of the reasons why I've written the book to remind everybody. But it has had a knock-on effect with Ukraine because while people do not want to deploy military forces on the ground in Ukraine against Russia, the level of Western support for the Ukrainian cause, in my view, has been very heartwarming because it shows we do have resolve in the West to protect the principles of international law. And in one sense, I think you know, the West has rediscovered its mojo because of the failings in Syria. Do you think that there's an issue that people feel, the public feel that Ukraine is somehow closer to us, of course, as geography, but because of culture, it's seen as possibly part of, you know, it's part of Eastern Europe, it's seen as something very close to Europe, that Syria to the to most people seems further away because it's culturally quite different. But I, th- I think I think there's some virtue in that, Charlotte. And, you know, I've, I've heard people in the Middle East say, well, this shows, just shows you how racist the West is because, you know, they'll send arms to the Ukrainians because, you know, they're technically on, on the European continent. But when it comes to the Arab world, they're, le- they're less interested. I don't really buy that because, you know, the British army lost hundreds of people fighting on behalf of the Muslim population of Afghanistan. And similarly, you know, the Americans in Iraq and Afghanistan or whatever. So I don't buy that argument. I think Syria just got too complicated. It, it's a victim of its geography. And the fact that Turks are involved, the Iranians are involved, the Gulf states are involved, the Saudis are involved, the Iranians are involved, the Israelis are involved, everybody's involved. And it just became a very complicated issue. And I think a lot of politicians in the West, after the criticism they generated, Afghanistan, Iraq and Libya, just felt, well, there's no votes in this. It's a long way away. It, It is an immensely challenging issue for us. Having said that, I still think we could have established humanitarian corridors, some kind of no-fly zones. We, we could have afforded the Syrian people some level of protection, just as we did in Iraq when Saddam was in power. We had the no-fly zones in Kurdistan and southern Iraq. I mean, we had those for, for a decade to stop Saddam massacring his own people. I think we could, with a bit of intelligent thinking, done something similar for the Syrian people, And the fact we didn't is to our shame and regret. And now, of course, the climate is changing around Assad with reality on the ground. And the concept of prosecuting him for war crimes is changing as he's as serious being rehabilitated into the Arab League. What do you think about that? Where are we going with that? I understand why it's happening. And it is mainly happening because of a lot of disquiet in the Arab world at the conduct of the Biden administration, which, like the Obama administration, 
doesn't want to get itself involved in, in the region. And particularly, you know, the rift between Riyadh and Washington is driving a lot of this because it's made Riyadh force forge a closer relationship with Beijing. And that resulted in Beijing arranging this sort of uh, diplomatic rapprochement between Riyadh and Tehran. And with you know, Iran and Syria almost joined at the hip as allies, you can't have a rapprochement with Tehran without doing the same with Damascus. So that's what's going on. I don't think there's much enthusiasm amongst a lot of Arab leaders to have a deep engagement with Damascus, particularly as the Assad clan, having survived the civil war, has now essentially turned Syria into a narco state, whereas it is flooding the whole region with this captadon drug, which is a serious problem and making the Assads very rich. So they're not just war criminals, they're now drug barons. And I think a lot of people in the Arab world will be holding their noses when, at the prospect of dealing with the Assads in Damascus. I'm Charlotte Leslie, director of CMEC, and I'm joined by author and journalist Con Cochlin to talk about Con's new book on the tragedy of Syria, the triumph of tyranny. There would be listeners who feel that Syria is a long way away. It's not our problem. Look what happened in the Iraq war, 2003, etc. But it is quite close. Can I ask what the impact on you has been of reporting on these issues and writing this book over the years? How has it impacted on, on your life? Well, I've, I've been covering this region now for 40 years. I first went to Beirut in 1983, just after the Marines had been blown up. And I went in with the, the relief U.S. Marine convoy. So I had a baptism of fire. So I've covered many wars in the region, the Iran-Iraq war, the first Gulf War, two intifadas, the second Iraq war, twice in Afghanistan with the Russians and then the, you know, the Americans. So I spent a lot of my career in the region, which I love on a personal level. I've really enjoyed my time and I find the region very stimulating and interesting. But writing this book and researching this book, I did have to delve into a lot of the appalling crimes that were committed. And of course, you know, there are video recordings of these crimes now. And, you know, occasionally I've had to say to my wife, you know, I just can't watch this for my own mental health and my own mental well-being. So it has been very challenging, but I, I feel very strongly about this subject because, you know, I think it's not just about Syria. It's about the wider world. This is what happens when we sit on our hands and close our eyes to something terrible happening in the world. You know, I've seen it before when I was in Sarajevo covering the Bosnian conflict. We've seen it in Africa with, with massacres there, with people just wishing it would go away. They don't go away. We have to be involved. And I think the moral of the story, the terrible Syrian conflict, is that we cannot ignore horrors when they take place. We have to act in the best way we possibly can. We don't always get it right, but at least we must do something. Something must be done. What should the West do now? Well, I think with, with Syria, I would like to see a, a process set up where we seriously talk about prosecuting those responsible for committing war crimes. You know, we've done it with Putin. Why not Syria? I don't understand this. The politics of this, of course, is that everybody is more interested in trying to get a new nuclear deal with Iran. So therefore, nobody wants to upset the Iranians by holding Assad and his cronies to account for war crimes. Well, I personally think the Iran nuclear issue 
has, has moved on since the, the JCPOA was signed in 2015. I think Iran is so advanced now that 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 is wishful thinking to think we can put the the nuclear issue back in its box. And I would prefer to have a little bit of moral high ground here. And I know there's a there's more than a million pages of documents detailing precisely what Basha and the regime did to brutalize his own people. You know, there should be a tribunal set up under UN auspices, as there have been for other atrocities, and let's hold them to account. And it doesn't matter if you want to have diplomatic relations with Damascus. Those diplomatic relations must be established on the basis that one day people like Assad will be held accountable for their actions. Well, it's been as often it is with talking about these issues, particularly in the Middle East, but also in other world, it's been quite a bleak prognosis, quite a bleak assessment, both of past and of present and possibly of future. Is there any hope? Is there, to, as a final note, is there any cause for hope that we can grab hold of? Well, eventually the, these tyrannies end. And I think the Assad regime is actually in a very difficult place. It controls just about 50% of the country. The civil war continues. Only this week, the Russians were bomb- bombing so-called terrorist positions in Idlib. We've had this report published by the BBC detailing how Syria has become a narco state and the Assads are the mafia dons controlling the captured gun trade. You know, this is not sustainable. It will break. And the Syrian people deserve better. And you know, the, the Middle East is changing rapidly. Just look at what is going on in Saudi Arabia at the moment. The modernization program that is taking place on every level. Syria is now stuck in a time warp, a corrupt time warp. And it, it has to end. And I don't see it being kept going for much longer. Thank you very much, Con. You've been listening to the CMEC podcast with me, Charlotte Leslie, and I'd particularly like to thank our guest, journalist and author Con Coughlin, and I cannot recommend more highly his insightful and absorbing book on Syria, The Triumph of Tyranny. Con, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure, Charlotte. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.